right after I got out of high school, I got pregnant and I'd been working like dead end sales jobs. And a friend of mine, when I got pregnant was like, Chris, you got to stop having these dead end jobs. You have to have a real career now because you're going to be responsible for a human being. I was like a 19 year old pregnant single mother. So I thought, well, okay, what do I like to do? Well, I have this BBS and I love being online and I love tinkering with computers. I guess I'll go work with computers. I really cared about how computers connect to each other and they connect people to each other. So I looked in the paper and there was an ad for a field service agent for IBM. And I thought, well, I could do that, I'm sure. I could, you know, if I don't know it, I could figure it out. And after that, I went to work in-house because I found that the customer experience really was what I, I loved. I was coding websites for other customers, and that was my side business. And the company figured out that they could make money off that. They were like, well, Chris is making money off this. We should be making money off this. So they bought a web design company and they put me in charge of it. And they were just like, here you go, sink or swim. It started out as I just want to do this for fun. And then it was like, oh, this is what I was meant to do. Chris Blackwood fights for the user. That means she designs the way that human beings interact with software and hardware so they have a good experience rather than the frustration many of us face with technology that just doesn't want to cooperate. She has been designing interfaces of many kinds for over 20 years, working with startups and Fortune 500 companies in Silicon Valley. In this episode, Chris describes her journey from being an in-house designer and developer all the way to the senior lead user experience designer at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, where she is designing the future of mission operations with a human-centered design team. My first few web design jobs after I left the agency were as an in-house designer developer. And I would write the HTML, the JavaScript. And then when CSS came along, I was writing CSS as well. And after a while, I started realizing that as much as I enjoyed making websites, I wanted to focus my time on research and the design, problem solving, identifying the problems and solving them. And that was both a sad thing and a great thing. Every once in a while, I still get my hands dirty. But for the most part, I haven't written any production code except for my own website yeah. in years. And so you say that's sad. Why is it sad? Because code is, code is beautiful. It's so orderly, right? When something goes wrong with code, you're going to find out why. Right. There's something logical in there. With people and with design, there's a subjective element, which sometimes you will never know why a design didn't work. And that hurts the logical side of me. <laughs> right. So how do you negotiate those two? Like if you've moved on from doing the code and you're focusing more on the user experience and what's that kind of relationship between the subjectivity of the design experience and the kind of logic of the code? Because they're obviously really tightly bound together, but what's it like to be in that sort of dynamic between the two? I think the code and the design are both in service of the experience. They're both the elements which go into serving the greater good of making things accessible and easy and learnable and discoverable. So 
I find that the code will sometimes inform the design because I'll be working with a brilliant developer who knows that they have this capability to do something I wouldn't even dream of doing and no customer would ever dream of asking for. And so the developer can push that to me and I can say, oh, what can we do with this? And then the design can challenge the developers. It can say, okay, well, I really want to do this thing. I remember back before we had CSS animations in HTML, I'd be like, I really want to animate this opening. How can we do that? Let's figure that out. Let's build a JavaScript library that can just do that for us. Yeah, I mean, I do find that designers often who don't know code, they're sort of scared of it. It's this kind of black box that they're not going to touch. And so, but what you would often find a response from, from developers is like, no, tell me what you want. Yeah, and, and it's funny you say that uh, some designers are afraid of code. That's so true. And yet I've never met a developer who's afraid of design. Right. We all realize that we have our specialty and that there are people who are much better at the other than we are. Like I know I, I'm a functional programmer. I'm not a good one. There are people out there who are artists at programming. And I've never met a programmer who no matter how much they realize they're not a great designer – was afraid to open up Photoshop or open up Sketch or pick up a pencil and draw out an idea. So at some point in your journey, you end up at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory at NASA. What was that like and how did day one go? I'm not ashamed to admit I cried. <laughs> like tears wiping the tears on my way in the door. And day one at JPL is all orientation. It's very much an indoctrination into the history. And JPL itself is older than NASA. So JPL was founded by some crazy Caltech students who were blowing up rockets in their backyard. After blowing up things in the neighborhood and at Caltech, they were like, well, maybe you shouldn't do that around people. Right. Let's buy you some land that there's no houses near and you can shoot rockets off from there. Right. So that's sort of, you start with being kind of immersed in the history of JPL mm-hmm. Then you get this tour that shows you the amazing wonderland you're about to work in. And I really did feel like JPL was Disneyland for nerds. Because you go from a model of curiosity to a visualization of data coming in from space to fake Mars, which is actually a a flat yard of dirt that we have mimicked the surface of Mars so that we can drive a rover around and test it. It's hard not to feel like you're dreaming. What is your role there? And and tell us about the kind of early experiences that you've had in that kind of environment. I'm a user experience designer. I'm the technical group lead of the human-centered design group, which is the first human-centered design group at JPL. So 80 years of history, design group is six years old. So it has been very interesting showing these brilliant system engineers and scientists how to work with somebody who uses design thinking and who straddles the, the line between science, research, and art. So that's been both challenging and rewarding because when you see a system engineer whose interface primarily is Excel and numbers, and they think in logical progressions and algorithms, when you see them sit down with you and watch you start to sketch a storyboard of their concept, 
they just light up and they get it. They're so smart that they immediately see the applications as soon as you start showing them the methods. And that's a joy. At the same time, the way that JPL works is that we're government funded. Obviously, we're a NASA center. And so all of our money comes from the U.S. government. And every minute of our time has to be billed to a project. And the projects pay for our involvement. So the money comes in, goes to NASA. NASA gives it to JPL. JPL gives it to projects. Projects spend it on humans. So you have to convince each new project that using a designer at whatever stage you can get in there is a good idea. And it was pretty easy to convince them to use us at the end stages, you know, after the spacecraft is launched and there's software to be built. That makes sense, right? It's tangible. But our argument has been that if you involve us earlier, when you're designing the spacecraft, when you're designing the trajectory of the mission, when you're designing the operations of the mission, that's like five years before there's ever even a physical spacecraft. If you can involve us back then, we can do so much more good all the way through the process. This spring and fall, some of the world's top creative minds tell it like it is and explore the deep truths of design at Design Thinkers. Design Thinkers is an annual conference for like-minded people and offers in-depth analysis of trends and best practices in design. On May 29th and 30th in Vancouver and October 24th and 25th in Toronto, join a community of people passionate about creative communications and go deep into the truths of design. For more information, visit www.designthinkers.com. Do they appreciate the value you bring through design? How do you convince them that design is a worthwhile enterprise at NASA? At NASA especially, if something has worked well somewhere else, then there's a chance it can work well here. So when I first came in, I was able to bring 20 years of experience in Silicon Valley with companies that have complex projects and complex systems. And I was able to say, look, at Cisco Systems, we did this thing and it worked in this way. And that opened a door for me to try something small. Designers bring a creative and human touch to it that is very easy to lose in the numbers. People are not logical. And designers carry with us the discipline and the practice of thinking about the random ways in which things can go wrong and the unique and illogical processes that go on in humans' heads. And that, I would say, is probably what the system engineers value most about working with us. How does that connect to the idea of the change-resistant user or the idea that some people will resist change no matter how much better the alternative? We're all change-resistant users, every single one of us. I don't know how you reacted when the iPad came out, but I was like, really? Yet, the iPad has changed my entire workflow completely. And the same feeling about the iPhone, although I didn't have that reaction, the public at large was like, wait, you're getting rid of the physical keyboard? Where are all the buttons? How can you use this thing? And yet the iPhone is the model for all smartphones now. How many smartphones are released with keyboards now? So we all resist change at first, but there are some types of users for whom the stakes are a little higher. Doctors? 
anyone in, in the aerospace industry, that's both, you know, like air traffic controllers and people dealing with human space flight, any of these people, for them, change introduces a level of risk that is unacceptable. And so you have a sort of immune system reaction that says, whatever that change is, no, it's bad. I don't care if it is the biggest improvement in the world. It's bad. I don't have time for this. It's going to slow me down. For doctors, they constantly have more patients clamoring for time and attention. And doctors would much rather be face-to-face with a patient than staring at a screen. So they don't have time to learn that crap. And so these are users who I call change-resistant because it's not their fault. It's not a shortcoming. It's a byproduct of the incredible pressures put upon them. And when you design for them, you have to be extra super careful and sensitive and intuitive, I think. How do you design for that? How do you get them on board? And what does that look like? Well, first of all, you can't design anything that doesn't actually make their life better. Sometimes we have to do design things that are just to make the business better. We need to monetize more because we're going to run out of money if we don't. With these users in particular, you can only make changes that are improvements for the user because anything you do that isn't an improvement for them is going to catastrophize their whole life, right? They're going to just leave you or you're going to cause them huge problems. The second thing I think that you have to do is you have to involve them in your changes. So I'm a big fan of iterative design. I am an acceptable designer who does great work because other people give me feedback. And it's not because of me. It's because of their wisdom coming into my designs. I just push the pixels, dude. When you involve these experts in their workflow and allow them to tell you how they think and what they need, then you provide both a real value and an impetus for change. There's an idea about a different kind of design research that designers try to do called observational research, where the idea is that instead of asking someone how to make something better, you discreetly observe their real behavior. And by watching what they naturally do, you get a much better insight than if you were to ask them how to make something better. Like, What's your sense of how to conduct research? Research is an ecosystem, and you need all of the above plus some. I also am a big fan of experiential research. And anthropologists out there are probably cringing right now because you don't get involved in your subject. But I believe you have to go do the thing in order to truly understand it. If I was designing for doctors, I would spend time in a hospital as an aide. When I'm designing for the Deep Space Network, I have connected the antenna to the spacecraft. I've done the thing they do at their workstations with them standing beside me, giving me instruction and telling me, how to do this thing. So I really believe that a combination of quantitative and qualitative is where you find your sweet spot of information. You cannot just do one because the quantitative is going to tell you what, but it's not going to tell you why. We don't need to go talk to people. We can see that they're not pushing this button. Let's make it bigger. You don't know why they're not pushing that button. Maybe they're not pushing that button because that's not the core task they're using your application for at all. 
So I think you need to do the the observational and the interviewing and the experiential just to truly have a full holistic picture of what your users are going through. I don't actually think design is art. I think design can't be art. It has to be the combination and the marriage of science and art. You're not expressing yourself. You're expressing the needs of another human being. I think the scientists I work with think that design is art because they see me sketching and they see me drawing and they see me storyboarding and those are arty things. You can make art that comes from your heart and from intuition and from your expertise and your training, but it isn't necessarily going to serve the needs of the user. User experience is not art. It can't come from within you. have to be iterating and you have to be testing is this concept right do people understand this the way i think i understand it what's next how do you look past the immense horizon that is your current job in my dreams jpl is this design thinking organization where when you say you're a designer it is as admirable as when you say that you are the mission manager for voyager In my dreams, everyone at JPL is a design thinker. And so for me, the next frontier beyond my immediate challenges is just helping all of these 5,000 plus people that I work with come to understand the value of design and come to be designers themselves. Check out more about Chris, follow her at Shotoshan on Instagram and Twitter, and watch some of her talks on YouTube. First Things First is produced by Max Cotter. Frontier Media is a part of Frontier, a design office based in Toronto, Canada. We believe that design is more than visual. It's a process of exploration, discovery, sketching, prototyping, iteration, and refinement. That process can help create a better world. Our mission is to help others understand how that goal can be accomplished. To do this, we use design to create better and more purposeful products. We publish a magazine and produce this podcast to explore and celebrate the risks people take in the process of creating things that are original and worthwhile. And we work with clients to help them define their purpose and tell their story. To learn more, visit www.frontier.is. First Things First is recorded in Toronto and Vancouver at the Design Thinkers Conference, organized by our founding partners at RGD the Association of Registered Graphic Designers, who represent over 3,800 design practitioners, including firm owners, freelancers, managers, educators, and students. Through RGD, Canadian designers exchange ideas, educate and inspire, set professional standards, and build a strong, supportive community dedicated to advocating for the value of design. 